You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today is, of course, our exception. Today, we're talking about cults, though maybe not in the way you usually think about. We can often have shows on how to respond to the cults and such. How do you answer a Mormon? How do you answer a Jehovah's Witness? Those are good shows to have. Those are important shows to have. But today, we're talking about cults in general and more. What is the mindset of a cult? How do you recognize a cult? And if you are in a cult, or if a loved one is in a cult, how do you escape? In order to discuss this, I uh, brought on a guest who's very informed on this topic. In fact, this is the guy that, when someone comes to me and they've got questions about the cults and such, I'm glad to answer them. But when it comes to... How do I get out of here? Including, re- very recently, someone wanted to escape Jehovah's Witnesses. I pass him on to this guy and say, this is a man you need to talk to. His name is Don Vaynot. He is the co-founder and president of Midwest Christian Outreach Incorporated, a national apologetics ministry and mission to new religious movements based in Wonder Lake, Illinois, with a branch office in Quincy, Illinois, and Cape Coral, Florida. He, along with his wife of 47 years, Joy, have been involved in discernment ministry as missionaries to new religious movements since 1987. He is a frequent guest, frequent guest on various radio and television broadcasts, including the John Ankerberg Show, as well as being a staff researcher and writer for the Midwest Outreach Journal and is a co-author of A Matter of Basic Principles, Bill Gofford and a Christian Life, contributing author of Preserving Evangelical Unity, Welcoming Diversity in Non-Essentials, as well as articles in the COI Journal, PFO Quarterly Journal, Campus Life Magazine, Journal of the International Society of Christian Apologetics, Midwestern Journal of Theology, and other periodicals. He was ordained to the ministry by West Suburban Community Church of Lombard, Illinois, at the Garden of Gethsemane in Jerusalem, Israel, in March of 1997. He is a charter member of ISCA, International Society of Christian Apologetics, and is also the current president of Evangelical Ministries to New Religions, EMNR, a, count, a consortium of counter-cult apologetic and discernment ministries from around the country. So, Don, welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. If my audience doesn't know who you are, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to be doing what you're doing? Um, <laughs> yeah, I tell everyone it was the woman that God gave me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up as an atheist, and mm-hmm. I was not overly impressed with the, I, I had, you know, obviously Christian friends, uh, but uh, as a young uh, young fella, uh, was not impressed overly much with Christianity. They didn't seem to have any really good 
reasons for believing other than their parents or mothers, fathers, pastors told them what was true. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't notice that they behaved any differently than I did. We blew up phone booths together and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. uh, met a young lady, got married uh, three years later. Uh, and then three years after we married, we had our, our, our first child, a son, which kind of aroused her spiritual interest. She grew up in a Baptist church, became a believer in her teen years. Uh, and because of uh, starting to think bigger thoughts about the world with this new responsibility in her life, rededicated her life to Christ uh, and then realized, okay, I'm married to an atheist, what do I do now? So she asked me to read some material which tended to be more um, uh, eschatological, end times, and mm and uh, apologetic. At the, uh, so I, I worked through this material and realized there's several things. One, I couldn't really be a good atheist because that's a claim to know something I can't know. In other words, God does not exist. Uh, I can't really know that. So God may exist. What kind of a God? And I had to go through the steps then of, uh, is it the God of Hinduism, Christianity, and so forth? And I ended up coming to the faith. Now, how do we get into apologetics? Kind of the same way as we're trying to sort out what does the Bible teach. My wife met some Jehovah's Witnesses on a bowling league. Now, she didn't know a lot about what they believed, but she did had heard that what they believed was not compatible with sound biblical teaching. But they were really wonderful women that she was uh, uh, bowling with. And so she came home and asked me to help her figure it out. And I have to tell you, I was really challenged because I was still trying to figure out what the Bible taught. I mean, I was so biblically illiterate that when I would open the Old Testament, I would see the uh, uh, this book, J-O-B, and think it's the one ads. And so uh, as I started learning more about Jehovah's Witnesses, I started learning more about my faith at the same time. We started out really just to reach her friends, which then led us to starting a pre-recorded helpline that was sort of our next step uh it seemed a little uh, not too confrontational something that my wife really could do i could support i was in business at the time and uh, i never imagined being a missionary i thought i would just be a rich businessman and support missionaries uh and so i funded this for her she we opened a a pre-recorded helpline she would write the messages change them every week uh we would advertise in local papers for Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and we got quite a few calls, actually. Uh, and uh, one of the uh, features of that is you don't actually pick up the phone. You just allow them to call because what we discovered is they are afraid. They think the watchtower is trying to catch them. Uh, uh, and so we didn't pick up the phone. Over the next period of time, quite a few people opened similar kinds of helplines, and so we converted ours to a live line, and all of them would do their messages, and at the end they would refer them. If you want to talk to somebody live, call this number, and they would send it to us. Well, we started getting phone calls at 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, and so we're talking with Jehovah's Witnesses all over the nation from different states and different towns at different times of day on these issues. Then we started getting phone calls on other groups. And so my wife again said, she would do Jehovah's Witnesses, and I would have to do everybody else. And so that's how Midwest Christian Outreach got, uh, came into existence. Mm-hmm. Now, when we talk about these kinds of things, I mean, it's easy to talk about cults so many times, but it's so vague. 
what exactly is a cult? Well, I, I think probably the best definition for our purposes is by Alan Gomes, and that would be a group that claims to be Christian uh, but denies one or more essential doctrines of the Christian faith. Now, that would be a Christian cult. Uh, for Midwest Christian Outreach, we have kind of two categories that we look at. One is uh, theological, and that's where Alan Gomes is coming from. The other is sociological, uh, the kinds of control and uh, uh, what we might call thought reform techniques that groups may use. They basically change your world view. And in the process, you become dependent on the leader or leaders mm -hmm. to tell you what's true. You no longer are able to uh, make those judgments yourself. And so um, we apply those two criteria really for this reason. There are groups that don't claim to be Christian, uh, but act in, in sort of cultish ways. You have political groups like that, for example. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you have groups that are within the church that hold to orthodox views, and, but act in cultish ways. Mm -hmm. And so, <laughs> uh, I, you know, Bill Gothard's uh, Institute in Basic Life Principles is like that. Uh, uh, they have a, a, a false view of grace, for example, uh, but that wouldn't qualify them as a cult. It is their behavior that qualifies them as, uh, as, a, uh, as a cultic type group. Not a cult, but a cultic type group in right. behavior uh, because of the rigid authoritarianism. They, uh, he teaches that uh, uh, God gave authority as an umbrella protection if you're under the umbrella you are protected from all evils life can bring to you. Uh, if you get out from under the umbrella protection, uh, then uh, that is rebellion, and rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and so you may suffer great consequences. Your authority is God, your pastor, the husband, the wife, and the children. And you see, we've got pictures of, of this uh, where... Uh, God is the hand holding the hammer, which is the husband, which is the beating on the chisel, which is the wife, and breaking the children into pieces. Not a good picture. Oh, uh, and yet he was very popular in the evangelical church for four decades. That's kind mm -hmm. of a thought. So, Yeah, I, I was going to ask that because I've seen, I'm sure there are some groups out there that they could sign all the Christian creeds that we all sign, such angry of them. So the problem isn't their belief system per se, but their mindset. Their mindset is very cultic, and a lot of times they just don't think for themselves. They just go with whatever the leader says. Well, I, I, I want to correct that because, you know, we, we like to assume they don't think for themselves, but I would suggest they actually do. Mm -hmm. The problem is a worldview problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, they are making decisions. If they weren't making decisions, then they couldn't leave, obviously. Uh, so mm -hmm. what is going on? Well, let, let's paint a picture. Let's say, Nick, that uh, someone uh, uh, came to the house of one of your neighbors, mm -hmm. uh, dressed up in uh, what appeared to be a policeman's outfit, driving what looked like a patrol car, knocked on the door and said, to them, we are very concerned there's a serial killer running around our neighborhoods right now. Uh, he will come to your door screaming that your house is on fire. Uh, when you come out, he will shoot you. Uh, 
now that you're out in the open. So no matter what happens, if someone comes to your door like that, don't leave the house. And then they leave. Mm-hmm. Now, you think this is a person of authority and you respect what they say mm-hmm. and you base your decisions now on the information that was conveyed by this authority. Mm-hmm. The next day, the same guy comes back, but now he sneaks around your house and sets it on fire. A passerby sees that and comes running up to the door, screaming, your house is on fire. What do you do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, most of us would probably stay there. Ah, you're going to stay inside the house, most mm-hmm. likely, and you'll perish in the flames. Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. Because you believe someone who really was a fake and a fraud that persuaded you to believe something that was false and the person who was really trying to help you uh, is the one that you were afraid of because the one you took as the authority the day before persuaded you to believe false things and you you made a bad decision based Mm -hmm. on faulty information. I would suggest that's what happens in most cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because you come into contact, you can pick the group, doesn't much matter, if it's Scientology, if it is Jehovah's Witnesses, if it is Mormons, if it is uh, even within the Christian church, Bill Gothard. If you come to believe that somebody is speaking for God or some bigger force than you have access to in an authoritative way that you can't access then all of your decisions are based on the information they give you and you can't question it because to question them equals questioning god and there will be severe punishment if you do yeah my wife and i were watching a lot of these videos about the recent september 23rd incident which as we know didn't turn to anything. We even had Hugh Ross on months before to talk about it. And one of the things I always noticed is, obviously, every time I said, well, God told me. I had this dream from God over and over, and I was, every time I see those things, they are playing a very dangerous game. They are uh, playing a very dangerous game, and they want to claim they're speaking for God, but they refuse to be evaluated by the test that God gives for prophets. Mm-hmm. And and unfortunately, too many people are, on, are A, unaware of what those tests are, mm-hmm. and, uh, and B, uh, if they have some awareness of it, they seem to make an allowance for exceptions in, uh, in this time period that we live in now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the tests are, are fairly easy to understand. Deuteronomy 13 uh, God says that someone may come to you and, and give a prophecy that in fact comes true or comes to pass. Mm-hmm. But they will lead you to believe in false gods. That is a false prophet. Uh, Deuteronomy 18 uh, gives a second test, which is someone who makes a prediction that does not come true or come to pass. They are a false prophet. In both cases, they should be rejected. So let's uh, let's take this, uh, for example, uh, with September 23rd, as you pointed out. Mm-hmm. Someone claims to have this this information from God. They're claiming a prophetic status. Well, until the date passes, you can't really judge if they're a true prophet or a false prophet. But once it passes, you can make that judgment. So, mm-hmm. September 23rd came and went. Did anything happen that conformed to the supposed prophecy? Nope. So, based on that, what should be done? Well, 
if it was uh, someone in church leadership, I would think at that point they should repent and be willing to step down from that position. If there's someone who's just a YouTube personality, the whole church should essence say, you've done wrong, you need to repent and not pay any attention to them. But unfortunately, most people in the church are not going to do those things. Well, that's exactly right. And I would I would say, and I don't know if you, you, you may not have read much of our uh, material in our journals and things like that, but I have an, a little thing that I coined some years ago uh, as I was working on articles about the church. Uh, it's And I, I think that much of the church has something we would call AIDS, A-I-D-S. Mm-hmm. That is the acquired ignorance of the doctrines of Scripture. I like that. Uh-huh. The acquired <laughs> ignorance of the doctrines of Scripture. And like physical AIDS, it has the same consequence. If you have, if you're ignorant of the Scriptures, you have no... Um, no immune system in place. Your immune system has been compromised, and so you're open to all sorts of spiritual error and sickness that goes with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so apologetics, defense of the faith, understanding the Bible in context are all of the ways that we prevent those things from happening. Now, we, there's some statistics that should concern us. Uh, and, and you are likely aware of this. You've been doing this for a while. Mm-hmm. But if we look at all of the major polls that have been done, um, and there's a very good little book out, by the way, called The Great Evangelical Recession by John S. Dickerson, I would recommend. Mm. Uh, and uh, what he points out is that if we look at all of the major studies that have been done, only about 75 to 9% of the U.S. population are evangelical Christians. So, you know, we, we, keep, we keep sort of deceiving ourselves in the church as thinking we have great numbers out there impacting uh, our society, you know, 40%, 50% of the population. It just is not true. Uh, we are really more along the lines of where the church was Probably in the second century, numerically. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, maybe the third century. Yeah, maybe the third century. Uh, so, I mean, in the first century, you only had about 7,500 believers. In the second century, it goes up to, um, you know, like 30,000 believers or something like that. By the by, the time you get into in the uh, yeah, third century, uh, around 300 AD, that would be the fourth century, you have... Uh, Around around a million, 1.2 million believers, two percent of the population. So we're talking about seven percent of the population. So we're somewhere around the numbers that they had in you know in the fourth century. Mm-hmm. So we have regressed. We haven't increased today. Yeah, that surprised me because uh, I mean we see all these things like these Gallup polls and such that. So many people believe the Bible is the word of God and such, and most numbers seem to be a bit higher and such. Uh, I mean, what exactly are we talking about? Are we saying that only 10% of America are what we would call saved, born-again Christians? No, or? I would say solid evangelicals. That's the okay. way That's the way uh, it's put in this book. Here, here's what I mean by that, because this plays into this whole question of how do we reach people in, in cults and false religious groups. Mm-hmm. Uh uh, a fairly recent statistics uh, asked this question 
Um, I forget the name of it right now. I just saw it about two weeks ago. Uh, but as it goes to the questions of from evangelicals, do you believe Jesus is God? The answer mm -hmm. is yes. Now you would say, okay, well, that's an evangelical. Uh, but then they go on to say that Jesus was the first thing that the Father created. 50% mm. of evangelicals say that. Mm. Now, does that mean that they're not Christians? No, it means that they're not sound evangelicals. Mm. They don't have a well-informed biblical faith uh, because Jesus is eternally coexisting with the Father. He was not created at a point in time. Mm -hmm. uh, or what about this? Uh, the physical resurrection. Uh, a, a Somewhere around 70% of those who said, yes, I believe I will be raised from the dead, define that as God has a body waiting for me someplace else in heaven or someplace else that I will get eventually. Mm -hmm. But that isn't the biblical teaching on the resurrection. On the resurrection, the resurrection body comes from the body that we currently reside in. It grows out of it. There's a, a material connection from one to the other. Uh, it, it, isn't a, it isn't like we're moving from one house to another house. There's a, a tangible, physical connection that Paul calls a seed in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if we don't have basics like that, well taught in our churches and, and in our brains, then when a group comes along, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, becoming deceived it becomes a very simple process for them because they just use questions. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm thinking that so, many of it, so much of this can come even from the pastors. And I, I, I'm thinking right now that a few years ago when we lived in Knoxville, I had an aunt who was in her 80s, and she passed away. And my wife and I went to the funeral together, and I was listening to, I'm presuming it was her pastor, giving a eulogy, and it was just awful. And he, you know, one thing he just about how he came back from his vacation to do this eulogy, I was like, yeah, I don't care if you came back from vacation. I want to hear about my aunt, not you. But over and over, he talked about heaven, heaven, heaven. And the church should talk about heaven, but not a thing was said about resurrection at all. And then when he got towards the end, he said, but then, you know, we come to that blessed hope, what that Paul talked about in First Thessalonians 4. We Mormon, not those who don't have hope, because we do have hope. And I'm sitting there on the edge of my seat, yes, please, please, please. The hope that we, we will see our loved ones again in heaven. And my heart just sinks at that point. And even my own grandmother passed away. Her own pastor got up. I was one of three ministers assigned to the funeral. And he said, right now she is experiencing the power of a resurrection. And I'm looking at being, um, excuse me, pastor. It looks to me like her body's still down. But I don't think she's experiencing the resurrection yet. Right, right. Right, so bad, bad teaching. I, I had, uh, uh, I, I guess I'll for for the moment I will refrain from naming the pastor in the church, but a very, very, very large church in our area. Uh, the pastor got up and did a, a talk on what happens five minutes after you die, mm -hmm. and he opened up with five minutes after you die, you are immediately resurrected. And I stopped and I said, that's not true. 
because resurrection means a standing up again. Your body, mm -hmm. uh, uh, your resurrection body comes from the body you resided in. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it comes from the seed that is there and, and springs forth. Uh, so it's fundamentally the same body with added properties, which allows you to do things that you cannot currently do. Uh, but the resurrection is something that happens in the future. Your soul is separated from your body until the resurrection occurs, at which point it's reunited with your body. Uh, I listened to the talk. I wrote to him. There's about a three-page letter. I explained carefully the biblical teaching on the resurrection. As it happened, an apologist was part of his leadership at his church uh, at the time. They, they no longer have apologists there because we're red pencil personalities. We're concerned about doctrine, and the church did not mm. want to be confronted any longer mm. with that stuff. So, uh, But he went to this apologist, the pastor did, with my letter, and he said, I think, I think this is just a language problem. I think we're saying the same thing. Uh, and uh, so the individual looked at it and he said, no, what you're teaching is absolute heresy, and he's right to call you on it. The pastor, it took him three months to figure out that the resurrection is physical, that it is from this body, that it happens in the future. He wrote to me and he thanks me, and he said he wouldn't do it again. The next week he did exactly the same thing. Oh, gosh. Oh. So, so we have you know a large number of uh, of uh, Christians uh, who think that our resurrection body is currently somewhere else that God has already made it, and it is just waiting for someday when He'll uh, put us together with it. I keep thinking it would be so great if every church in America had at least one apologist on staff. I mean, you can have a minister of music, you can have a minister of ministration, a minister of children and such, youth minister. How come we don't have a minister of apologetics? Well, apologetics is viewed as divisive, and, you know, frankly, it is divisive. Mm -hmm. uh, but does that mean bad? Uh, Dr. Norm Geiser, uh, I, I love Norm, he's a good friend of mine. One of the things that he often says is when he got married, he promised to divide from all other women, and nobody thought that was a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Right, mm -hmm. I, I did that 47 years ago. I married Joy, and I promised to divide from all of the women, and everyone celebrated that that divisiveness. Yeah, right. Sometimes division is exactly the right thing to do. We do that all the time, in 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 all sorts of areas. Uh, now, it doesn't mean we have to fight over every single thing. Obviously, mm -hmm. I think within the Christian Church, there's a lot of areas where we are going to have divergent. Uh, divergent views on what I like to call the mechanics of the faith. In other words, how does God do stuff? Mm -hmm. uh, which is different than the essentials of the faith, which is the nature of God, the nature of sin, the nature of salvation. Those are essentials. We have to agree on those. Oh, yeah. Uh, others, other areas we can disagree on. But I, I, you're right, and I've argued often that we need each church, a large church, a multi-staff church, should have somebody on staff who is apologetically trained, because that can be used in so many areas of the church. Evangelism mm -hmm. is, is an area. I mean, apologetics is, uh, is uh, really twofold. It is uh, inward in discipleship uh, and the training of the believers. It is outward for evangelism, to make a reasoned argument for the gospel to those who need 
that kind of information, and there are many of them. You know, uh, when, when we're talking about the youth also in the resurrection, I think even many of our youth believe that reincarnation is perfectly compatible with Christianity. Yes, I just we just had someone show up at our church about three weeks ago, a visitor, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that question came up. He, they were sitting outside, and, and as it happens, my pastor loves apologetics, and so... Uh, you blessed man, you. I, I definitely am. You know, he and I spent a lot of time together talking through these issues. And so as he goes through the scripture, he goes verse by verse, book by book, through the Bible. And as apologetic issues come up, he'll deal with them. Uh, he starts out Sunday morning, and he'll, he'll read the passage. He'll kind of give you the background of what's going on. And say, now the context is, and he lays out the context. Then he preaches through the passage, and then he makes the application. He's very careful with that. But you're right, I'm blessed. He's, he's, he's one of he's very few. <laughs> but this question came up with this, with this visitor who is a believer, and uh, when, when I suggested that reincarnation is, is contradictory to biblical teaching, he said, no, Jesus was reincarnated. I go, no, no. Resurrection is different than reincarnation. So I sat down and explained to him what resurrection was versus what reincarnation is. And after about five minutes, he looked at me and said, why hasn't anybody taught me that before? I couldn't answer that for him. (laughs) So... The topic of our of our little sh- podcast here, though, is is trying to help people leave cults. Yeah. Right now, what we're kind of talking about is preventative stuff. How yeah. do you how do you help people from getting in them to begin with? Yeah. Sound teaching on a regular basis, equipping saints to do work of ministry. I'm going to suggest something here. You may or may not have seen. Okay. Did you realize that there is a difference between the ministry of the church and the mission of the church? I haven't really thought about that before. Okay. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 14, we have this really interesting assumption on the part of Paul. Now, this really kind of speaks to the whole seeker-sensitive view of the church. Mm -hmm. So if you go to that kind of church, somebody's going to be offended. Uh, I want to say two things. I won't apologize for offending them because I think this is true, I will apologize if I present it in a offensive way. Yeah. Okay, having said that, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about gifts. Mm-hmm. And in verse uh, uh, 14, I want to say 23, I'll have to look it up maybe. Um, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's talking about if you all speak in tongues... And he says, and if, if, he's assuming something, if the unbeliever comes in, he'll think you're crazy. And then he goes on to say, but if you're all prophesying, if the unbeliever comes in, he'll be convicted. Right. So he's making an assumption there. The, the assumption is unbelievers are not normally in church, which mm-hmm. tells us what? That the church is primarily for believers, not primarily for evangelism. And yet our mode of evangelism is usually get someone to go to church. Right, which is not, that's not a biblical mode. Mm -hmm. Uh, The biblical mode is this. The ministry of the church is what happens when we gather as a group of, as as a family of God, as a Mm -hmm. group of believers, where we are 
taught, we are fed the word of God, we pray for each other, we minister to one another's needs. If someone is sick, we pray for them, we help them. If someone is in need of food, we make sure that they're fed. If they're in need of housing, we try to provide that way. In other words, it is the care place for the family of God, Mm -hmm. the equipping place for the family of God, the preparation place for those who are believers. Why? To get them ready to go out into the world where they're going to be mixing with non-believers for what purpose? To spread the gospel. Mm-hmm. Right? If, 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 if what we have basically done is we've made the church a multi-level marketing scheme for Jesus, mm-hmm. where we try to figure out ways to invite our friends to the multi-level marketing meeting so the professionals can sneak up on them with the gospel. Mm-hmm. The result is we have abandoned the ministry of the church, which is equipping and preparing believers brought the mission of the church inside, and we now have a weakened church that is really doing neither one well. Because the lay people all expect the pastor to do all the work. Right. That's exactly right. You know, I'm thinking, could it be that, you know, this might seem like a bizarre suggestion, but maybe we should have sermons that do more than just give pure application and how to be a good person over and over and how to handle your own personal problems. And maybe, I, I know I'm going bizarre here, but maybe... Our youth could use something more than just pizza parties and concerts. I I know that's radical, but could that be the case? Yes, it definitely definitely could be the case. We have advocated that for a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. But it it, it does require work. if 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 we think that the role of the pastor is to increase the market base, to gather in more nickels and noses into the church building, we've really missed the role of what the pastor is. The pastor primarily is to guard the flock and train the flock. Those mm-hmm. two things. Yeah. To guard the flock from false teachers creeping in, to guard the flock from false teachers growing up within, mm-hmm. and to train the flock, to equip the flock. That's their primary function. In fact, we see in, in uh, Acts uh, 6, it's sort of interesting, uh, there was a problem in the church. Uh, they went to the apostles to, we want you to fix the problem. Uh, and, and their response was kind of interesting. They said, no, here's what we want you to do. You pick out seven uh, seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit, and we'll ordain them to take care of this issue because we're not going to wait on tables. We're going to devote ourselves to the ministry of the word and to prayer. Mm-hmm. So what are the church leaders supposed to be doing? The ministry of the word and prayer. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get to the courts then here. Yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> uh, hey, th- th- this was needed here and such. No apologies there. Like I said, not apologizing for the truth. Okay. Yeah. Now, let's suppose that you're the average Christian. You have these people coming to your door. And look, some Christians, some Orthodox Christians do do door-to-door evangelism. God bless them. But we know a lot of cults do it as well. If you get this same material from a group, how should you check it out to see if this is a group you want to be a part of? How should you check it out? Well, um, you know, the first thing as a Christian is you need to be really familiar with the essential doctrines of the faith. Mm And there's really good material available. I mean, they could contact us. We could recommend a, a variety of books that would be uh, helpful on that. The deity of Christ, the uh, uh, the triunity of uh, the nature of the Godhead, 
uh, the physicality of the resurrection, because then that would give you something to compare with what these groups are claiming, mm -hmm. number one. Number two, what is their actual authority that they're claiming? Uh, the Watchtower, Jehovah's Witnesses you raised, for mm -hmm. example, Jehovah's Witnesses, the Watchtower claims to be the authority. Mm -hmm. That they have the, the a group called the anointed class, mm -hmm. uh, and God speaks through them, through their periodical, the Watchtower and Awake magazines, to the average Jehovah's Witness. In fact, they say the Bible is not written to everybody, it is only written to the anointed class, so you have no hope of understanding it without mm -hmm. their telling you what it means. Once they have taken that away from you, you know you're in trouble because you should be able to check out the scripture by yourself mm -hmm. to make sure that what you're saying conforms with it. So that's the first thing. Mm -hmm. Check out what they're saying about who's, who is the final interpreter of scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, secondly is if you're trying to reach somebody who's in a group, almost our first reaction is to try to tell them they're in a cult. Oh, I'm sure that goes over very, very well. I mean, you probably get countless times where people have heard that and they've left immediately, right? I All the time. I get that call all the time. I tried to tell them they're in a cult. I showed them all. I say, okay, now we have to figure out a way to kind of backstep a little bit and undo some things. Not it isn't that what you're saying isn't true. It is true. Mm -hmm. The problem is, can they hear it? It's mm -hmm. kind of like if I would walk up to you, Nick, let's say, and start just taking my left hand and pushing your shoulder. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you you have two responses. One is you can just back away from what I'm doing, mm -hmm. or you can you can try to defend yourself from what I'm doing. Neither one of those are going to open you up to listening to what I have to say. Mm-hmm. Right? right, you're either focused on defending yourself or running away. Mm -hmm. So what we want to do is to figure out a way to be able to talk to them, which means, okay, you've told them they're in a cult. Let's back up a little bit and let's talk about just asking questions first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the place to start. Mm -hmm. uh, because ultimately, who's the one who does the convicting and convincing, Nick? And the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that. So we are simply tools along for the ride. We should be the best tools we can be, but we're just tools along for the ride. Mm -hmm. So kind of a, a uh, passage, I'm going to take you to a passage of Scripture that sort of determines how we do things here. It's in 2 Timothy 2, mm -hmm. starting with verse uh, 24 where Paul writes, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, mm -hmm. able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, mm -hmm. and they may come to their senses and escape this from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, in context, Paul is writing to a young pastor about troublemakers in the church. He's not right. really talking about cults per se. Right. But there's a broader application we can make here in terms of how we talk with anybody, whether it's somebody in a false religious group or a troublemaker in the church. Mm -hmm. Okay, he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. What is he saying? Don't be argumentative. Don't fight or you know, with the drop of a hat, and don't be the one that drops the hat. Mm -hmm. uh, right? 
so he's talking about attitude. It doesn't mean not to make a defense, and it doesn't mean to never have arguments over something. It doesn't mean to not be perpetually in argumentation mode. Mm -hmm. uh, but be kind to everyone. We need to treat people with respect, even if we disagree with them. Mm -hmm. uh, can I sit across the table from someone who's a practicing Wiccan and have a congenial conversation with them just about life issues? The answer is absolutely. Mm -hmm. Why? Because that the exchange is going to occur between them and God. I am along to try to challenge their thinking, uh, but ultimately it is someone else is going to do the persuading, and that is God. So I need to be kind to them. That's an attitude question. Mm -hmm. uh, able to teach. What is a prerequisite for being able to teach? I'd say you have to know what you're talking about. Have to know what you're talking about. You should know your subject matter. Able to teach. Uh, many, 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 unfortunately, are not equipped that way. Almost every time I talk with somebody who's lost a friend, family member, uh, a close acquaintance into some group, as I talk with them, they'll say several things. One, I never expected them to believe this because they're raised in a church. Two, I'll say, okay. If I was, and I'll name, I don't know, pick the group, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Gwen Shamblin, Way Down Workshop, Scientology, doesn't much matter. I'll, I'll try to argue from their position. I'll say, okay, if I was uh, Gwen Shamblin, Way Down Workshop, uh, and I said to you that Jesus never claimed to be God, what would you say? Mm -hmm. And they almost always go, well, of course he did. I'll say, okay, well, where can you show me that in the Bible? And as they start thinking about it, they go, well, I can't, I can't remember where he said that. And so, well, he, actually he did, but you have to have an understanding of the historical language and how it was being used. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now what you're demonstrating to me is you can't make a defense of this position. You don't really know what you're talking about here mm -hmm. because you haven't been well-trained. So able to teach is really important in these discussions. You need to understand why you believe what you believe, so you can ask reasonable questions. Patiently enduring evil. In other translations, it says patient when wronged. I like that better, patient when wronged. <laughs> mm -hmm. You will be wronged a real lot in some of these discussions. If you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness or a Scientologist or a Mooney or a, even a Wiccan, uh, they are going to kind of be on the attack because they are invested in what they believe. This is important. Mm -hmm. They are invested in what they have believed. Mm -hmm. So if they're invested and you're asking them to, to admit that it's false and to leave it, what is going to be their reaction? Mm -hmm. Defensive. They're going to be wow. defensive because they've invested it. They don't want to look foolish. It may be money. It certainly is their, their emotions are invested in it. To some of them, it's going to feel like their intellect is being challenged. Uh, but the truth is, all of us can be deceived. And it's a just lot of us can be the very family, the whole identity, the whole life. Right, right. So they're everything. They're, everything is invested in this group. So you're going to be wrong to real lot. And you need to be patient when that happens. I, I have this kind of thing I, I tell people. Um, it's a question and a Danish, I call it. A question and a Danish. Ask them a question. And then offer them a Danish. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that is, it isn't important that they answer the question immediately. They can think about it 
for a minute, for 10 minutes, for two days. It doesn't really matter. Because the silence can be your friend. That means they have an opportunity to think about it apart from the pressure of having to answer it to you. Yeah. When I lived in Charlotte with my roommate, who was the best man at my wedding, and we were both into apologetics together, whenever we had Mormons come over, we'd do the same thing every time. In advance, we'd go to Little Caesars, pick up a $5 pizza, get some Gatorades, and have them come over, and we'd all have pizza together and talk about the issues, which I think was a great step, because, I mean, these guys, they're out there trying to live on their own money and such. They don't have a lot. I'm sure it made it a joy for them to come see us every time, and it eventually led to two great times. One of them was they called me once and said, hey, we can't come over. we got some problems with our car. I said, where are you? And they told me, I said, I'll come pick you up. So I went, and I got them, and I picked them up, and the whole time we're driving, and it's just me and them, I'm thinking the whole time, yep, I've got from here alone, there was no escape, and we can talk about these issues all we want. And then another time, we had someone coming over, we had two Mormons coming over, one of them was for the first time, and we were going to go uh, to this nearby Jewish cafe to have lunch together, so it's kind of interesting. Mormons and Christians walking into a Jewish cafe for lunch, it's, it's like it was a joking set to be written. The thing is, this place was within walking distance, and the new Mormon who came by, he saw a lot of our, bit, our gaming systems together, and oh, he was so enthused about that. The other Mormon, we think, was really struggling with a lot of doubt based on what we were saying. So we walked to this cafe, it's about half a mile, then we start walking back, and the new guy is talking to my roommate about all these old video games and such, and he... And my roommate notices how that's going, and he kind of steers him away a little bit out of earshot of me and the other guy who's doubting. And so I'm getting talked to this guy, and he says, well, why do you all have a cross in your churches? I mean, doesn't that, isn't that a symbol of defeat? And you need to answer all these questions. And we, when they left, we thought, yeah, those two probably got a really good talking to when they got back. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, what you're doing is something we often recommend. If you're talking with Mormon missionaries, uh, feed them. Yeah. Feed them. That gives you 30 to 45 minutes just to kind of figure out why they're even Mormons. So you can build a relationship with them and ask them good questions. So yeah, heck, that's, one, that's great. Like one Mormon even came back and we got done with his mission. He added us as friends on Facebook. Oh, cool. <laughs> and something else I think that I do as well, or whatever I could say, I don't do it. And you can tell me if this is right or wrong or not, but I mean, I think it's probably accurate or else I wouldn't do it. And that's like when I have Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons combined such, I think for a lot of Christians who learn something about the cults, it's tempting to kind of go straight for the jugular and try and slam them with hard questions immediately. I don't. I tend to go step by step and just let them leave the discussion at first and present my answers to the questions and such, and just see what happens from there. Uh, Unfortunately, they don't tend to stay visiting for long, but for that time, I do try to just not slam them with a gospel, you know? Well, I think you're. I think you're right. In fact, uh, in fact, uh, the end of this passage, and I want to come back to this. The end of this passage says, 
correcting his opponents with gentleness. So mm -hmm. that's kind of where you're going with this. Is yeah. You're asking questions to correct them gently. Mm -hmm. It's a little at a time. You're not trying to bash them into the faith, and that's not really yeah. effective generally. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but to allow them the latitude to consider what you're saying mm -hmm. and to count the cost of, of accepting it uh, to the point where they may lead. And it says, God perhaps grants them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. So this all comes back to God. Yeah. What you're saying is exactly right, and that is what what I do and advocate, actually, is to try to move slow. Now, I would say if we take a similar model to Jesus or Paul, we find that they dealt differently with those who should know the truth than those who are deceived. Right. Right. Very often they would start off also just asking questions. Uh, so when the Pharisees who should know the truth would come and, and vent something to catch him, uh, he would always invariably come back with a question that would hang them. Mm -hmm. But he was gentle in it. In other times, those who should know better, uh, he became disruptive. He went in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers. Mm. But even there, you see this interesting little feature in the as he's overturning the tables, the money scatters, the uh, every you know the goats and the sheep are the, they all go running off. He takes the 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 pigeons, the the doves, mm. and he hands them to the sellers and says, take these uh, uh, from this house. Take these from this house. What is the difference between the birds and everything else? Birds are living. No. The birds would fly away and be gone. Mm. Everything else can be picked up and regathered. Mm. You know, something also people don't sometimes realize about the time when Jesus lived is that during questions asked in public weren't asked for a purpose of learning. They were asked for a purpose of challenging. Yep. And that's how Jesus, in fact, knew Nicodemus was sincere. Of course, Nicodemus came privately at night to ask her questions. He wasn't. He didn't care about shaming Jesus. He just wanted to know. Right. Right. So, so the first, the first thing in, in trying to reach somebody who's in a group like this is our attitude. That's our responsibility. Uh, it is not about trying to beat them into the faith uh, or to shame them into the faith. It is really about helping them to question what they are in for the reason of getting them to the place of recognition of who God really is and mm -hmm. how to have peace with God. Because mm -hmm. salvation is ultimately about two things, forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. Once we're forgiven, we're clean, and the Holy Spirit then indwells us. We have peace with God. So that's a fairly simple concept. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's sometimes you have to get through a lot of weeds to get there because of the deception that they are under. Mm -hmm. And so our task really is clearing the field of the objections that they're going to have. And questions usually work much better than assertions. You were mentioning this Jehovah's Witness that called you. Mm -hmm. uh, we're having a, a kind of a fun time. We communicate at least once a week. Mm -hmm. uh, and he is currently, he's, he's, he's well on his way out, but he's mm -hmm. trying to reach at least some elders. 
And as he was preparing, because he's very smart, as he's preparing, he's researching the material, and he's coming to the conclusions on what the Bible teaches, and he's ready to meet with the elders, and he contacted me and said, okay, I would suggest that you ask them questions, don't make assertions. Right. Which is what we're talking about here. And so that's the tax he's taking, is, is a kinder, gentler way, and gives people the opportunity to respond or to say, I'm not ready to talk yet, which both of them are fine. But you become approachable, and they don't have to be afraid of talking with you. I also think another important thing that we need to do often is, like, if if the Mormons come to me, and they're trying to tell me all about the Book of Mormon and such, my goal is not so much to tear down the Book of Mormon. It's to build up the Bible, primarily, and then once the Bible is shown to be true, I think the Book of Mormon and everything start to fall away on their own. But I think one of the great dangers you can do is if you make it just entirely that without building up something to defend them. I'm sure you've seen this several times. The people will leave the cult, but they don't become Christians, they become atheists. Right. Right. Right, because they haven't made a positive case for Scripture and mm-hmm. for the Gospel. Right. Well, I had a, I had a, we had a guy, um, this is kind of a funny story. Some years ago, we had an individual contact us. His wife was Jehovah's Witness. He was an atheist. Mm-hmm. He was desperate to get her out. She had been in for seven years. And uh, so he came and I met with him. And I said, well, okay, what are you going to take her to? And he said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, just to get her out is insufficient because she, she believes in God. So just to say, I don't want you to be Jehovah's Witnesses, isn't sufficient. What are you going to take her to? And he goes, well, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't really care. I just don't want her to be a Jehovah's Witness. Uh, and so he persuaded her to come and meet with us, but he lied to her about what was going on, which made me very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so she had been a Jehovah's Witness for seven years, I might have said that. So they came over, and he introduced us, but he, in, but he lied about who we were to her, and I didn't want to start this this relationship based on a lie. And so, as we sort of sat down to start talking, we didn't talk to her about the Jehovah's Witnesses directly one time. We started mm-hmm. talking to him about the existence of God. Several things happened. Mm-hmm. After, because she was very wary about us, after a little while, she started joining in the discussion with us to persuade him that God exists. Why? Because she wants him to become a Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. We were talking about a number of different doctrinal issues and naming different groups. The Worldwide Church of God, for example, uh, uh, and uh, and uh, uh, the Mormon Church and, and, and other groups. But each doctrine that we talked about, as it happens, was a Jehovah's Witness doctrine. We just never mentioned the Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. So in two hours, we covered a lot of material. He was highly frustrated because he wanted us to talk about Jehovah's Witnesses, and we didn't. Supposedly. A week later, a week later, we met with them again. She had left the Watchtower. She had accepted Christ as her Savior. She believed he was fully God. And now he had to make a decision on what he was going to believe. Why? Because she had the opportunity to think about the information without having to defend it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think this gets back to also about having foundation, about how important it is to have people so they can fall back on. So I remember hearing a story about a, a ministry where they helped someone get out of a Mormon church who was in Utah, and they paid for him to get a plane ticket to fly back to 
another place there, maybe a place he grew up, I don't remember where, but he said, but someone asked this person who got him out like a week or two later, says, you, you did you hear what happened to that guy you got out? He says, no, what? Um, he flew to such and such place and then he hung himself. Oh. And I, I can't even imagine that. That could probably happen more often than we realize because once you pull them out, if they don't have anything, they have no identity whatsoever in their mind at that point because their whole life has been defined by the court. Right. Well, that's exactly right. So uh, gentleness, correcting, asking questions, um, and allowing them the opportunity to to think about it. you. You had us connect with a, a lady in another country, and her daughter and son-in-law are, have been in a group for seven years that she just realized two years ago is a cult. Mm -hmm. uh, so as we're kind of working with her, that was one of the first things they said is there's two books I recommended. One is written by, not by a Christian, but by someone who had been a Mooney. It's called, um, it's by Stephen Hassan, um, Combating Cult Mind Control. Now, he's not a Christian. He's not giving a biblical uh, teaching on this. What he's trying to explain is the mindset of somebody who's inside of a group like that and what goes on and how to mm -hmm. communicate. Mm -hmm. uh, the other one is, uh, the title is The Subtle Power of Spiritual Abuse. Because we don't realize how it is that we become controlled by leadership. And so getting a grasp on that from a biblical perspective is really helpful. Mm -hmm. Because once we have a grasp on that, it helps us then to reach out to somebody who's in a group like that because we understand then what they are experiencing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think people just don't take the time to realize that because as much as we like to think we take our education seriously in the church, I give a credit to the courts on this one. They take teaching their members what they think they should believe very, very seriously, far more seriously than we do. Oh, they do. Our Jehovah's Witnesses uh, go to, go to uh, uh, three meetings a week on average. Mm -hmm. uh, they read about 3,000 pages of information from the Watchtower and Awake magazine annually. Uh, and, and it's uh, uniquely set up because as you read through a Watchtower magazine, uh, different paragraphs have numbers, and on the bottom of the page, there's a, a question that corresponds with a number. Mm -hmm. You don't read it and then answer back in your own words. You read the question, and you go to the paragraph, and you memorize the paragraph verbatim. Oh, yes. And then when you have a Watchtower study, you are called on by the Watchtower conductor, mm -hmm. and you stand up and you quote verbatim what it says in the Watchtower. You don't give them your idea of what it says. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, then you pass. So... Uh, there's a process. You get your watchtower, you sit down immediately and read it, you highlight the questions and the answers, uh, and then you put that away, you pick up the watchtower you're currently studying, then when you get to that study, you pick it up and you read it again, you highlight your stuff, and then you go to the watchtower study. So three times you've interacted with that material, at least three times, uh, to memorize it. Mm -hmm. What does that do? It teaches you by rote memory what you are supposed to believe. It doesn't and, and that kind of bypasses your conscious decision-making processes.
at this point, I can monitor when you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast. We got Don Vaynard on here talking about cults and how to es- how they work and how to escape them. But if you're listening next week, we've talked some about essential doctrine, where we're going to go to that. We are going to be talking about the resurrection again. Another great topic. This time, we're having Ross Clifford on, a lawyer from Australia who is going to be talking about the lawyer's leading case for a resurrection. Can you make a legal case? that Jesus rose from the dead. So, if you're interested in that, and I hope you are, please come back next week. And now, Don, like I said, when I lived in Charlotte with my roommate, we have these Jehovah's Witnesses coming. They did ask us to go to their kingdom hall with him one time. And we said, sure, we'll do that. So we picked an evening, and we went there. And I have to tell you, I have been through many, many things in my life, but that visit... I think can, I can easily say was one of the scariest things I have ever been through in my life because I saw exactly what you're talking about. I mean, when they sang the hymns, for instance, there wasn't a piano or musical instruments or anything. There was like this tape recording coming from somewhere and the music. I'm not a music expert, but I could tell something was off. And my roommate and I got in the car, he said, did you notice how strange the music was? It wasn't <laughs> just me. I mean, they have hymns in their hymnal about looking forward when all the apostates are destroyed yep. and such. And we'd hear them regularly saying, we are so thankful for a faithful and discreet slave providing food in a proper time. Yep. And this went on for hours, and we did see exactly what we're talking about. They'd ask a question, and someone would stand up and quote verbatim. And we said, now we know why our friends who were visiting us were so surprised with all the answers that we gave to the questions because we actually thought about it instead. And they'd have role plays of apologetic encounters so that the witnesses could learn to answer questions. And then, of course, in the end, love bombing took place where they just surrounded us and wanted to shower us with love and affection. Fortunately, my being on the Asperger spectrum kind of shields me from that because that just terrifies me. But we we went home and I was saying, I hope I never have to do that again because that was terrifying. Yeah, well, so you experienced it firsthand. And mm-hmm. I, I sometimes, when we're training someone to reach out to... Uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, I some have to, sometimes have to ask them to go to a kingdom hall because they get an edge on them about Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. They don't really realize that they're that they're people. They're like you and me. They're mm. they're moms and dads with uh, you know sons and daughters, and they get dressed up on a Sunday finest to go uh, and and to learn about God and their faith. Unfortunately, mm. they don't. They learn about the Watchtower. They learn about salvation through the watch where they learn about the faithful and discreet slave they really learn actually anything about god mm-hmm. you know there are so many people that could be listening and thinking you know you can just go and shove all these bible passages and such and we just go against the doctrine with a watch how you could point to things like the false prophecies and such and people just don't seem to see it why is that because it depends on why they're in there. See, that's the, that's the next aspect. So we, we already talked about our attitude and asking questions. One of the questions we want to know is, why are you in whatever group you are in? Mm-hmm. So I 
I want to take you back to not Jehovah's Witnesses, but to Wicca. Now, Wicca is one of the fastest growing religions today in the U.S., uh, and, and most people don't realize it. There are uh, in excess of, uh, I'm not even going to give you numbers, it's, it's a lot of Wiccans practicing, uh, and they have denominations even. They have the Covenant of the Goddess, the Fellowship of Isis, Circle Sanctuary. Uh, it's a growing phenomenon. Many of them were raised in a Christian church. Mm-hmm. And so when I was at the Parliament of the World's Religions in 1993, and it was the first time I actually sat down and talked with a Wiccan. Uh, and we met with a guy named Donald Fru. He was one of the PR guys for the Covenant of the Goddess, one of the larger uh, groups of Wiccans. Uh, he had no experience with Christianity except for those who misrepresented what they believed. And so we spent two hours just uh, there's about a half a dozen of us apologists, and he, he came up to our suite, and we we talked with him about why he believed what he believed. We compared it with what we believe, and gave reasons for what we believed. We enjoyed our one another's company. Uh, he talked about uh, Michael Aquino, uh, who started the Temple of Set, uh, Xander Levey, uh, who uh, started the First Church of Satan. Uh, and and made the case that Wiccans do not believe what they believe. They're not Wiccans are not Satanists. They are a pagan Earth religion, uh, and they they you can pick your any god, any deity you want to worship. Uh, and at the end of our discussion, he's made some an, an, an amazing statement. He said, "If I thought being a Christian is what you guys are, I would become one right right now." But I don't believe it. I think you are an anomaly. I think what I see and I run into in the churches and Christians who uh, demonize me on a regular basis, I think that's what true Christianity is, and I don't want any of it. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) why is he what he is? He is what he is as a rejection of what he sees the church as. Uh, A Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. Should you stick with with the the Bible, or should you stick with the exposing the watchtower as a false prophet? It depends. Why are they what they are? Mm-hmm. If they got in because they had no friends, then neither of those approaches are probably going to work because you're asking them to leave their friends. They didn't right. get in there for theological reasons. If they got in there because they were a Lutheran or a Baptist or something that didn't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Jehovah's Witnesses did the how and why questions. How can God be a trinity? Why would God be a trinity? Uh, And you don't have answers for that. Now you become confused, and so you are a Jehovah's Witness because of theological reasons. You want to deal with that. If they are Jehovah's Witnesses because they feel like the church lied to them, then you want to deal with the Watchtower's history. So the question of why you are what you are is going to determine what direction you take in trying to reach somebody. You know, I, I'm hearing you say all this, and I'm thinking, it's amazing how little we have dealing with some of these issues out there. I mean, we've got great books and the projects dealing with many, many issues, but some you can hardly find anything on. I mean, I've been suggested to do a show on reincarnation sometime. There's not much out there on reincarnation, and I was just looking up here, Wicca, as mentioned, if it's fastest growing religion, maybe I should do a show. I'm having a hard time finding a book with Christians answering Wiccans. It's, I mean, I think that's a problem because we're not hitting some of these areas where a lot of our youth are going. 
Well, we're not. That's that's exactly true. We did a conference in a little town of Cortez, Colorado, a few years back, uh, and uh, it, it, what intrigues me, one of my friends, uh, Bill Hunsberger, I don't know if you know who he is, he's a missionary to New Age in uh, Denver, Colorado area, Aurora, Colorado, specifically, mm-hmm. uh, and he knows a great deal about Wicca, and so uh, when we were down there, setting doing the apologetics conference we had a special event just for teens and he spoke the he did the first talk and he was talking on wicca only to discover that in this small town of cortez colorado or there's all of the youth groups together there were maybe 50 or 60 kids and he talked about a brand new book that had only been out for three days by silver raven wolf half the kids already had purchased and read the book Wow. In these Christian churches. And they had no defense against it. So, uh, okay, so that's really telling us what, you know, it isn't just uh, bewitched with Samantha. Uh, There's a growing group out there uh, that like the mystical practices, like the sort of relative concepts. Uh, I met with, uh, she's now passed away, but the founder of the Fellowship of Isis, uh, Lady Olivia, Interesting, very interesting woman. She is a, if you had a cartoon caricature of a crone, a witch crone, this is exactly what she looked like. If I showed you a picture, she would be the uh, model for that picture. Um, just to be clear, to brings up the people, when we're talking about the fellowship of ISIS, we mean like the goddess religion, not the Muslim terrorist group. That is correct, yes. Yep. This, this predates, this predates the Muslim terrorist group. The fellowship of ISIS is a Wiccan group uh, started in Ireland by Lady Olivia, uh, and uh, if you asked her, which we did, why the Fellowship of Isis, and she said, well, Isis is the goddess of a thousand names. And so if you want to worship God as Mary, you know, if you're Catholic, you can do that. If you want to worship God as the Holy Spirit, if you're Pentecostal, you can do that. If you want to worship God as Jesus, you're a Baptist, you can do that. You can choose your own deity to, to worship. Um, and she was intrigued by our asking questions and making a case for the Christian faith, so much so that everywhere we we went, if I'd run into her, she'd want to sit down and talk more. She was very interested in it. She was Episcopalian and didn't see a contradiction between Episcopalian and a Wiccan. Um, So how do we reach a Wiccan? The same way we reach a Jehovah's Witness. Why are you what you are? Help me understand that so that I can start asking you questions that are going to maybe not only help me understand you, but help you understand what I believe. So I can make a positive case for the gospel and not focus so much on a negative case about your lost condition. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And I would like to let people know that while we haven't done a show exclusively on Wicca, although now I'm certainly wanting to do one, we have had Marsha Montenegro come on the show before to talk about her escaping witchcraft and astrology. So go back right. and check the archives, and you can find that show. I don't remember what year, but it was around the time of Halloween. Well, and they could go to our website. Should I give them that information? Absolutely, and we'll be giving it again at the end of the show, but go ahead and give your website. Uh, they could go to midwestoutreach.org. Mm-hmm. MidwestOutreach.org, and we have an article on there called "Why Not Burn Witches." It's a philosophical question, mm-hmm. 
because Wicca basically teaches that truth is relative. You make up your truth, I make up my truth. They may be in opposition to each other, but they're both equally true. And so we go through a series of questions uh, that really come down to this. If truth is relative, can you say it's wrong to burn witches? Isn't it really the case that you can only say it's wrong for you to burn witches? You couldn't say it's wrong for anybody else to burn witches because maybe their truth is it's fine not only to burn witches, but maybe to beat witches uh, drag witches down the car behind, down the road behind your car. So really, to burn a witch, beat a witch, or take a witch to lunch are all sort of moral, morally neutral choices. Mm -hmm. Now, it's it's done in kind of a fun way, question and answer. But we come back to the same question: How do we reach somebody's a Wiccan? Why are they a Wiccan? That's what I want to know. Mm -hmm. Once I know that, then it's going to give me direction as to how I want to talk with them. If they are a Wiccan because they don't understand what the Bible teaches, that's one question. Mm -hmm. If they are a Wiccan because the churches that they were involved with were abusive and they are finding a home here where people care for them, that's a different set of questions. So mm -hmm. why are you what you are? Right. It seems so simple, but something we probably all forget at, at the moment because, I mean, I think we in projects we can be rightly influenced on the truth but we often act like if you just give someone the truth they're going to automatically change their mind even though right. we have ample experience of that doesn't work yeah well that's exactly right i i have uh, he's uh, passed away but the co-founder of jews for jesus jan moskowitz was a very good friend of mine one of our uh, advisory board members mm -hmm. Uh, and we talked about this all the time, but I, we'd have him at our apologetics conference, and he would stand up, and the first thing he would say is this, I don't like apologists, mm -hmm. which would get everybody in the room's attention immediately because it's a room of apologists. Right. He would say, because they think if they give the right answer, people will believe, mm -hmm. but faith, and this is important for everyone to hear, faith is an act of the will, not a function of information. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean information is not involved. It is. But you choose to believe or you choose to not believe, that is an act of the will. So as you pointed out, apologists are notorious for thinking, if I give them the right answer, if I develop the right argument, if I lay it out precisely, they will accept it and come to the faith. Mm -hmm. That isn't the case. Yeah, I remember when I first started reading Case for Christ and... I, of course, found it thoroughly convincing and such, and I just thought, you know, I'm just going to get to go out there and answer people's questions, and this is going to be amazing how quickly people will convert to Christianity. Yeah, that delusion didn't last too long. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Even though it is well done. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can delude yourself into mm -hmm. thinking, you know, they, they will come to the faith in droves. Yeah. You know, people come to the faith more by one-to-one -one interaction than almost anything else. Mm -hmm. Because they adopt the faith based on the people that they care for and respect. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's also a matter of prayer, by the way. This is just kind of a side note. Uh, this is not anything that you, that you or I can do anything about particularly. Yeah. But if we're talking about getting somebody out of a destructive religious group, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I, I generally look for at some point is do they have somebody in their life that is a believer who's been praying for them? I'll tell you a story. 
years ago when we had our pre-recorded helpline and then turned into a live line, we got a phone call from a woman who was about to commit suicide. She was a Jehovah's Witness. As we talked to her, we were able to get her to at least receive some audio tapes. She was afraid to meet with us, but she would take the audio tapes. Her husband had been a Jehovah's Witness for 35 years. He was an over-the-road truck driver. She had been a Jehovah's Witness for 24 years. Mm -hmm. They raised their kids in the watchtower. They took our audio tapes. They wouldn't meet with us. He took the tapes on the truck with them each Monday when he left. He comes back on Friday and he goes, okay, they're right. The watchtower is false. This is after being a Jehovah's Witness for 35 years. Mm -hmm. But they'll never convince me Jesus is God. The next week, he took a handful of tapes with him on the truck. He came back at the end of the week and walked in the door. He goes, Jesus is God. They just have too much proof that it's true. Mm -hmm. They ended up, the whole family left the watchtower. Dad, mom, all the kids left the watchtower, came to the faith. Eventually, we discipled them along, got them involved in in a church close to them. And then, as we were talking with them, we discovered he had an elderly aunt that lived in Wisconsin that had been praying for him every day for 35 years. Mm. And then it dawned on us that we were the answer to that woman's prayers. The Mm -hmm. reason they came to the faith is twofold. She had been praying for them regularly, and God used us in a way to ask them questions to allow them the opportunity to consider what we were proposing without the pressure of having to commit until they, Holy Spirit used all of that to lead them to embrace uh, the biblical teaching on the nature of God, the nature of sin, and the nature of salvation. You know, I'm thinking about an interesting story we have. My wife and I both have Asperger's, as most people know. And when we lived in Knoxville, we got something in the mail from... I think it was my parents' church, talking about another church in the area of the same denomination having some sort of programs for people with disabilities and such. And I said, honey, why don't we call them and just see what we can do? Maybe we can help out and such. I said, okay. And I called, and normally I don't start off talking about what I do because sadly so many churches have a negative view of, of apologetics. Right. But for some reason, I did. This lady answered the phone and I said, um, I study Christian apologetics and... Are you familiar with that? No. What is that? And so I told her, well, I'm a person that if you encounter an atheist or someone like that, that you go and you talk to me because I give him the answers, how you know God exists, how do you know the Bible is true, how you know Jesus rose from the dead, etc. things like that. Silence. Hello? Hello? A little bit of silence. And then when you're answering, yeah, I hear her saying, you know what, you are an answer to my prayer. I've, I'm just sitting here crying because I've just had someone contact me on Facebook who I, you know, apparently they grew up with, and he's an atheist, and he sent me all these things, and I have no idea what to say. Right. And so we arranged a time that we could meet together, and we met at this little restaurant together, and she showed me the stuff, and I think it was quite relieved because I, was, I just started laughing. Remus says that. This is kid stuff, okay? I'm going to deal with this. And I dealt with this guy. He never bothered her again, I don't think. And she's good friends with my wife to this day. In fact, 
She's the one who runs the, the jewelry department of our ministry here. And it was, it was just a wonderful way those things work out. That I mean, normally I would never have started off saying I'm an apologist. But this time I did, and it was the exact thing that was needed. Right. That's exactly right. And you're right. A lot of people are afraid of, of apologists. Mm-hmm. And, and, and largely that is because of bad apologetics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there there is a, uh, a fairly pronounced group that get involved with apologetics just because they like to fight. Mm-hmm. Um, apologetics is a tool. It's, it's a means to an end. It is not the end in itself. Mm-hmm. Apologetics is not inspired. It is it is a method, it is a way to disciple believers and to reach the lost. That's mm-hmm. really, it has a twofold aspect. It is not primarily so we can beat somebody up with it, mm-hmm. but that's what we generally find happens. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, tempering ourselves, as, as I went through Second Timothy, tempering our presentation and our interaction with others is really important because mm-hmm. like you discover this woman she needed answers didn't even know where to turn and you mm-hmm. and the spirit led you to call what a cool thing is that Mind everyone at this point better. The Evil Waters is listener supported by people just like you, and we really could use that support. And I really want to encourage you to support us. And you've heard some about what we've done in the past year, and we're still doing this to this day. And every time we get together and do this show, it it's done so you can be informed out there. And if you're being informed and blessed by ministry, give back. Now, how do you do that? You go to deeperwatersapologetics.com and there's a link on the side. Help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. You click that link and you get taken to the ministry of Mike Lacona, Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place there. You're you're there. Mike Lacona, as people know, is my father-in-law. So you you make your donation and then you talk to Mike or his wife, Debbie, or you talk to me or my wife, Allie. And say, hey, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. We'll give that donation. It will be tax deductible. And it will be used by us for ministry purposes. You can also buy books that we've writ- that I've written or co-written, written, e-books. Um, a Creed for the Ages, the Apostles' Creed and Today's Christian. Co-written books like Defining Inerrancy or Groundless or God and Natural Disasters and others. And... I just mentioned the jewelry store. Yes, our friend Lena runs that. Guys, I'm not sure if you've noticed this. Uh, I mean, Don, you've been married for 47 years, I think you said, so I'm sure you've noticed this. Women tend to like jewelry. I mean, it's just something about them. They like 
wearing jewelry. And guys, you can go and you can buy something from the store for that lady in your life. And whatever you purchase, 25% of that will go to deeper waters. Just uh, let us know and we'll make sure we get that taken care of. So guys, when I see it, you can uh, buy something for that lady in your life to make up that big screw-up that you recently did. Or <laughs> you can buy something to make up that big screw-up that I know you're going to be doing in the near future. <laughs> I I'm guessing that laughter is from experience, isn't it? Oh, yeah, I I've had in 47, well, we've been, we've been married 47 years. We did it three years before that. So next, well, in two weeks, we'll be together 50 years. So mm. I've made my share of uh, faux pas along the way, yeah. Yeah, for those who don't know, for us, uh, my wife and I met and married in less than a year, but we've been together for seven years. I've had my share of mistakes. So, and guys, if you can't donate in any of those ways, it, you just don't have a lot of money and such, I understand. Um, share the podcast with your friends. Talk about it with other people. I, I'm so pleased when I hear people get in touch and say, hey, thank you for the show. And so many times they'll say, I heard about it from a friend. And if you can... Go on iTunes and leave a positive review for the Deeper Waters podcast because that really helps get the word out about the show. And Don, do you have an organization you'd like to see people donate to? Oh, absolutely. Midwest Christian Outreach. And mm -hmm. they, uh, there's a big yellow donate button on our website, midwestoutreach.org. Uh, there's a number of different things uh, they can go to from there. They can sign up. We have an e-letter that goes out every Thursday called The Crux. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have a lot of little newsy things, the joke of the week, all sorts of things we put in there. Uh, plus, we announce our, we link to our blog, which we update every Thursday. Um, uh, this week is uh, dealing with the question of the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the Sabbath, and how do we, uh, how do we uh, address that as it, as uh, as we look at it? What we discover from Ezekiel is that the uh, Sabbath was a sign between God and Israel, specifically. It's a mm -hmm. sign between God and Israel. So, uh, uh, so so our blog is available there. And then we have a YouTube channel, Midwest Christian Outreach, Inc. Uh, again, you can get there from our website, but we uh, do a live webcast every Tuesday night, uh, 7.30 to 8.30 Central Time with a whole host of uh, figures. Uh, and uh, we love satire. I don't know if you've uh, watched what we do uh, Nick, but we uh, love satire, so we have faux commercials involved there. Uh, while we're dealing with uh, serious uh, issues, we like to laugh at the same time. So mm. it's uh, midwestoutreach.org is our website. I can certainly say I love watching the videos from Lutheran satire, so I think they, they, I'll, I'll enjoy these very much. Yep. Yeah. You know, yep. I, I, I find it so amazing you talking about the Sabbath because just I think it was just Thursday this week. My wife had a sleep study done to see if she's got narcolepsy or not, and we don't have the results yet. But in the middle of it, she has to wake up and just stay awake and such. I mean, they study her for 15, 20 minutes, and then she wakes up again, things like that. In the middle, she's watching all these YouTube videos, and yes, we're still watching some of these prophecy videos and things like that. And the technician comes in and starts talking to us. And turns out he's a Christian, but we get into a big discussion because he thinks he's supposed to be Torah observant and such. 
And it looks like we still agreed on the censure, so I wasn't going to make too big a deal, but we had a good discussion back and forth, and a lot of it did go with the Sabbath. But you know, a Sabbath was just written by the finger of God and such, so it seems like it'd be pretty important to follow, and so we just had a back and forth about that. Well, right. Now, okay, so back to people getting in involved in false teachings. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a perfect example because the Sabbath is clearly spoken of in the Bible. It's clearly there. Oh, yeah. But it's it's foggy in many people's minds what that means. So for for many, they look at Sabbath as, okay, it is a day of rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and 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 so we have now what some call the Christian Sabbath, which is which is the first day of the week. Mm-hmm. Well, there's really no such thing in Scripture as a Christian Sabbath, but mm-hmm. but you know the come to that because you go, okay, the Sabbath is in there; it must be important. Therefore, this is what we're going to do with it. And so when you meet somebody who's a little more knowledgeable, they can point you back and say, well, Sabbath means seventh; it doesn't mean first; it never meant first. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, if you need to worship on the Sabbath, and that the command is the fourth command, so if we think that the Ten Commandments are, um, what's the word I want to use? Are um, divinely inspired? Well, not just inspired, because there's a lot of things we realize are inspired that are not applicable to me. Mm-hmm. But do they have jurisdiction over me? Maybe that's the word. Authoritative. Okay, right? Uh, then, if that's the case, what do we do with the fourth commandment? Well, I would argue a couple of things. Mm-hmm. Paul is pretty clear that the law is good and holy and righteous and meant for a particular people. Mm-hmm. Those who are unsaved mm-hmm. those who are saved the law no longer has jurisdiction over that's mm-hmm. an interesting concept uh, so that's the first thing I would argue is that we are in Christ when we have peace with God let me explain it to you this way uh, because again this is how how cults operate they, they set up a false view of things and then build on that so let's say, uh, do you drive, Nick? Yeah. Okay. Uh, if you are driving down the road, I don't know exactly where you live, but let's say you're driving down a, a highway and the speed limit is 55 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that speed limit have jurisdiction over you? Yes. Okay. Now, let's say, say you're going on down that road and you're driving and Allie is in the car with you. Does mm-hmm. that speed limit have jurisdiction over her? No. Why? She's not driving. She's not responsible she, for it. She's not driving. Okay, so is the law is that law of the speed limit still in force? Mm-hmm. Yes, of course it is, but yeah. only for the one who is driving, not for the one who is not driving. Yeah, I mean, if a police pulls over, they're gonna have words with me, not her. I mean, most of them might say to us, "Hey, why don't but, you uh, get this idiot to slow down next time?" Right. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. So, here's how this works in a spiritual world. The Ten Commandments, which is just a a synopsis of the rest of the Old Testament law, Mm -hmm. is alive and enforced for those who are driving their own life. In other words, they are unredeemed. For those who are in Christ, they are the passenger. Christ Mm -hmm. 
is the fulfillment of the law. He never speeds. He never misses a red light. He never blows a stop sign. He always uses a turn signal. <sighs> he never passes in a no-passing zone. In other words, he kept the law perfectly. And so if you're in Christ, the law is still good and holy and righteous, but it has no effect on you. Why? Mm -hmm. Because you are in Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, the guide to your life is, how do I serve Christ best? How do I love my uh, uh, the those in my life in a way that is pleasing to God? My questions are different. They have nothing to do with the law. Mm -hmm. How does that affect the Sabbath? Well, the Sabbath was given to Israel as part of a covenant. Um, our article, I think, would be helpful here if you would like to read that. It's, it's the first one you come to on our website. But uh, the fourth commandment starts out with this interesting word, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Mm -hmm. Well, it starts out with remember. What does that tell us? It tells us, it directs us, it, it guides us in a direction. Either the direction is remember this all the time mm -hmm. or it's looking backward. I would suggest it's looking backward mm -hmm. to when God gave Israel the Sabbath, mm -hmm. which is earlier in the book of Exodus. It's mm -hmm. not Exodus 20, it's Exodus 12 and then Exodus 16, where the Sabbath was implemented for Israel as a for a particular reason. Mm -hmm. And so it has no bearing on believers that are in Christ. And, and, and Paul emphasizes that then in Colossians. Mm -hmm. uh, he says, uh, you know, not to... Uh, be taken hostage by Sabbath keeping in, in Colossians. In Romans uh, 14, he says, uh, uh, one day esteems one day above another, another seems every day alike, let each one mm -hmm. be persuaded in his own mind. In other words, you want to have special time with God, you should do that, but don't inflict your views on somebody else. Yeah. I mean, if someone wants to take a personal day and such, then that's their choice. I mean, for me, on Sundays, I make it a point, I don't post on Facebook. I don't do debates. I mean, unless someone came to my door and such and talk, I don't do that. Sunday's a day I take a break from doing all the apologetics argumentation and such. And right. then I'm jumping right back from there Monday. If I mean, but I'm not going to other Christians saying, you should do this, you should do this. No, this is just my personal choice. Right, right. I, I have a friend who runs a, a, a Facebook uh, page just for, uh, it's primarily for those who left the New Age. Mm -hmm. uh, and she does the same thing. She she actually archives the Facebook page for all of Sunday. No mm -hmm. posting allowed. Uh, and and I respect that. I think that that's a fine thing. But yeah. you know, so it goes to our point of the Sabbath was for a particular people at a particular time. If you want to have a special day, you should do that. Yeah. Uh, and so that brings us back to this whole question of how do you reach somebody who's in a legalistic mindset, which right. is no different than being in a cultic mindset. Mm -hmm. It's about a relationship. What we're trying to do in reaching someone in a, a cult or an abusive group mm -hmm. is to help them to see that they can have a relationship with a living God day to day that is unlike this legalistic environment that they are in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think this is also never mind about wives is so important because these kinds of encounters, they can happen anywhere. I mean, it could have been this got more attention where we were because my wife was watching a Christian video and such, but I mean, how many other people could be out there one day and they're just listening to their favorite song on a Christian station or such on their, on their iPods or 
or whatever, or the iPhones or whatever, and someone challenges them on it. And it's another reason why everyone needs to be ready to be able to defend what they believe and why. Yes, and it's not what the scripture says, to be prepared to give a defense mm -hmm. for the hope that is in you, mm -hmm. yet with gentleness and kindness. Uh, so every place we t see about making a defense, we almost invariably see something about our attitude in the process of making a defense. Mm -hmm. So both things are true. There are many who are unable or afraid to defend the faith. Uh, and in, in, in kind of taking that attitude, they need to be trained and they need to take responsibility because the Bible is clear that that is our task. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, you wouldn't do that if, if you saw a neighbor's kid walking across a busy street without looking both ways. You would try to save, preserve them from getting hit by a car. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is no different. This is a spiritual uh, highway people are on, and, and we want to try to protect them from themselves. And to do that, you need to know how to defend the faith. The second aspect of that is, though, to not just become bombastic for the sake of showing people that you are good at defending your faith and you're going to beat them up mm -hmm. uh, as a demonstration of how good you are. Uh, our, that's where our attitude comes into play. Gentle, correcting those who are in opposition, uh, making a kind presentation so that people have the opportunity to accept or reject. God allows us to accept or reject, doesn't he not? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I'm pondering here about, it seems to come back to how important it is to, because we can talk about how to get people out of a cause, but I think the most important thing is to reach them in advance. You know, this, this past week I was doing some grocery shopping and my wife had talked about how we needed to save up some money so we can get our flu shots. But, well, it couldn't hurt to see how much insurance will cover. And so I'm at the Kroger and I visit a pharmacy and ask and lo and behold, they cover for me at least. And so I go ahead and I get my vaccination so I can be taken care of. Because, you know, the thing is, it's much easier to get the vaccination so I'm ready when the flu comes instead of waiting until the flu comes and then, oh, let's go out and treat this now. And yeah. In some cases, with some diseases, it could be too late. And so when it comes to our churches, I mean, when people get caught in the courts, yeah, we need to try and get them out. But it's much better to prepare them in advance so they can never get in to begin with. Well, that's exactly right. I, I can't tell you how many people who have read our book uh, on Bill Gothard, uh, A Matter of Basic Principles, Bill Gothard and the Christian Life, who have contacted us by mail or email or telephone to say, I have invested my entire life into this organization. Why didn't somebody tell me why it was wrong? Uh, and uh, we had, there's a, there's a large group of people who were raised in it from youth. Mm. Uh, they, they were homeschooled with his curriculum. Uh, and when they became of age, they rejected the Institute and they rejected God at the same time. Many of them become, have become atheist or agnostic. Mm. As they've <clears throat> read our book, talked with us, uh, gone to another website, which we have uh, helped to educate people. Uh, they've come back to the place of saying, wait a minute, 
just because God and Gothard both begin with G-O and end in D doesn't mean they're the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I can believe in God, but I don't have to believe in Gothard. So they're rejecting the God that Gothard taught them existed, but it was a false God. Mm -hmm. um, thinking about all this still, and it, it's great that some people have been able to come to you when you had someone escaping the courts and such, and I've been able to send you a few people I met meet through Facebook and such and emails. But what if it's someone you know in person person and they want to know how can what can I do? Because they can't necessarily drive them to Illinois and say, hey, help get this person out of the cart. What can a person do who has a loved one trapped in the cart and they want to see them get out? Well, they need to start doing some preparation because they want to be able to meet the person in a way that they will be able to hear them. Mm. So I almost always start out saying, here's two books that you need to read just to get ready, mm -hmm. uh, which I mentioned earlier. One is Combating Cult Mind Control by Stephen Hassan. Mm -hmm. uh, that gives you at least the understanding mentally of where people are at and how they got there. And it gives you some good instructive tools in where to begin in reaching out to them. Uh, the second one is, as I pointed out, the subtle power of spiritual abuse because it helps you understand the nature of how authoritarianism impacts people. Mm -hmm. Once you sort of get through those, now that changes your attitude about this. The second part of the preparation is what does the group believe? Mm -hmm. Because you're going to go miles farther in being able to ask them questions than you will in making accusations. Mm -hmm. And after they do that, I mean, they should also probably read something on, specifically on the group itself, shouldn't they? Right, well, yeah, that's what I had said. What does the group believe? So what group mm -hmm. is it? If it's the yeah. Jehovah's Witnesses, you want to probably read Ron Rhodes' book, Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, there, if it's Mormons, we have other material we would recommend. Mm -hmm. So in, in those settings, they can email us, and we could get them uh, connected to various mm -hmm. ministries around the country who already are, are, may be able to help them a little more locally. Yeah. Uh, if not, then, you know, we can get guide them along and, and what to do. Here's what to do, step one. Here's what to do, step two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and also I think one of the tempt tempting things to do is do what I call mission impossible Christianity, where it's like, we've got someone here, they're lost, they're trapped in this false belief system, or they're an atheist or something like that, and we have to get them, we have to get them out right now. And it all becomes on you, and every single encounter becomes helping them get escape the cards, helping them escape a false belief system, helping them come to Jesus. And maybe that that's not the best way. Maybe sometimes you should get together with this person just to get together. Well, that's exactly right. I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because we we tend to, we tend to, uh, what's the word I want to use? Be impatient or terrified. Yeah. Uh, that if we don't get them out in the next 37 seconds, they're going to die in that situation. Yeah. Now, they may. Yeah. But that's in God's hands, not ours. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two. Usually, it took them a while to get into whatever they're in, so it's going to take them a while to get out of whatever they're in. Mm -hmm. uh, number three, and 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 you, I, this is a great point. Sometimes you get together with them just to get together with them because yeah. it's for them. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, without the purpose of evangelism. Why is that important? Because you need to care about them as people, not just as a notch on your belt of getting somebody out of a group. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've had Greg Coker on our show twice. The first time he came on, he talked about his book, Tactics, and one of the things he says every now and then is just, do something to pour the little pepper on your shoe. Give them something to think about, and you don't have to go and give them something and say, now, let's save a sinner's prayer together, and let's all come to Jesus. Well, they might come, they might not come, and right. just because they're not coming, it also doesn't mean you're doing the wrong thing or such. It just means they're not coming for whatever reason. Well, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the timing may not be right. The Holy Spirit is working in, in their heart and, and in their life, uh, and they may be resisting. And there's all sorts of things that we don't have access to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's 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 intriguing to me that in Scripture, much of Scripture we see from the standpoint of the observer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one book where we see from the standpoint of uh, what's going on from the spiritual side of things that we don't normally see. Mm-hmm. And that is in the book of Job. Yeah, that's where I was thinking we're going. From that, in the book of Job, we see it from God's perspective on what's going on. And and Job's friends didn't see that. And so mm-hmm. they came up with all sorts of false ideas about what was happening to Job. Why? Because it's disconnected from God is what God is actually doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just because I, you know, I, I, I give them the, I don't know, four spiritual laws or whatever, and they don't come to faith right now, they don't have a Jesus moment in the next 15 minutes, doesn't mean God's not working with them. I'll give you another story. It's about Je- uh, Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. In 1992, mm-hmm. Joy and I got uh, signed up on, on this little, little known uh, internet service called America Online, just a startup at the time. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't think anyone's heard of that one. <laughs> yep, 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 yep. We, we were so early, we don't even have have numbers behind our screen names. Wow. Uh, and we did it to, to debate Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm. And so uh, there were about a dozen Christians, uh, all of us doing what we preferred to do. I liked dealing with biblical issues. Joy likes dealing with historical watchtower issues and different ones and different things. And... Um, one of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which we, we call a lurker, there are people who just read. They don't really interact with the, the information, which is good because it gives them time to think about what's being said. Uh, and they emailed Joy. As it turns out, he had been an elder for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And he has an opportunity to read this material apart from the emotional uh, wrangle that would normally go on sitting across the table from somebody. Mm-hmm. And as he asked her questions and they responded back and forth and he and they developed a personal relationship where she cared about him in spite of whether he ever left the Watchtower or not. Now, he ended up leaving the Watchtower. He's, in fact, we're gonna, I'm going to see him next week when we speak at the uh, Witnesses Now for Jesus convention in Pennsylvania. It's a convention of all former Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and he's one of them. Why? Because it, he had the time. God wasn't in a hurry, so we don't have to be. Mm-hmm. Which goes back to what you said, this mission impossible evangelism. Yeah. God is not in a hurry. Mm-hmm. Why should we be? Right. 
that it's just festive camping I've always taken as sponsor. Do whatever you do. Everything else is in God's hands. From that point on, and most of us don't really respond to, say, sales tactics where we know someone's trying to pressure us into a decision. Why would we think someone would do that with religion? Right, right, right. Right. Well, in part, again, that comes from the, from many churches to kind of put this pressure on of you have to give the gospel out because if you don't give the gospel and they die mm. uh, uh, in their sin, it is your fault. And so mm. you have this heavy responsibility. Uh, yes, we you know we need to proclaim the gospel. We mm. need to be prepared with an answer. But that's the key: prepared with an answer, prepared to give a defense. Mm. Uh, always ready to to make a um, uh, an an argument. Sometimes people think of it as in a bad way, but but a reasoned give a reasoned response to why we believe what we believe. We need to be ready for that. That means training, but it doesn't mean that you have to poke somebody in the eye every time you see them. Right, and I think one other thing we should talk about that Christians should never do. In fact, is slamming the door in the face of the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, if you're busy at the time, I think it's best to just say something like, you know, right now is not a good time. Can we arrange for such and such a date? I, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up. Because, mm -hmm. And here's a couple things that can happen. Yeah. If, if you do that, you say, it is inconvenient. I really do want to talk to you, but it is inconvenient for me. Could we set a date for, and then do it two weeks or three weeks down the road. Give yourself some time to repair, number mm -hmm. one. Two, if you don't even know where to begin, contact one of us, you or us. or, or yeah. and, and, and if there's somebody in your area that we know, they may be able to join you. We've had that quite often where mm -hmm. someone from our area would call, and we could say, you know what, it just happens. We have one of our board of directors, Bill Swickles, in your area, or Bill Kalin, or myself, and we'll be there with you. Mm -hmm. uh, thirdly, if that can't happen, then we can say, okay, here's what you want to do in meeting one, and we lay that out for them so they can do that. One question you want to work with, Get some coffee ready. Get some Danish on the table so you can have an enjoyable time. If it's Mormons, have some orange juice or something else. Invite them for dinner, like you like you mentioned with pizzas. Uh, feed them because they're out there on their own money. They don't eat well while they're on their mission, their two-year mission. Mm -hmm. So feed them, uh, and uh, they will come back for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and and then ask them questions. Why are you what you are? Yeah. You know, I, it's my understanding that, in fact, that if you go and you just slam the door in their face and such, they take that as persecution yep. and say, see, we must be in the truth because we are being persecuted. Yep. That's exactly what they do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I've told people before, if you have these people come to your door, I would be glad to come over and just help you talk with them and such. And I think most of us would be, and people need to realize also, if you do this, you could be in for a long haul. I mean, you could be spending weeks, months, maybe even years doing this, but it's worth it. It is, right. And, and so that goes back to the thing I said that you brought about Mission Impossible. You don't have to be that. What I said, yeah. God is not in a hurry, so why should you be? Mm -hmm. It could be? It could be minutes. It could be hours. It could be months. It could be years. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the women that got us involved with this to begin with, the Jehovah's Witnesses, most of them are still Jehovah's Witnesses. Mm-hmm. But because of God calling us to be involved with them, we've been able to reach other people along the way because of our interest in Jehovah's Witnesses mm-hmm. that we had never planned for, but it just happened uh, to come up in a discussion along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I've been interacting with atheists and such for several years. Very rarely do I see conversions take place. And the thing is, what we have to realize is usually we might not see those, but because of what we say, a conversion could take place several years down the road with what someone else says, or we could be, if it's an online debate and such, we could be strengthening the faith of fellow Christians watching who can go out and do some good then from that point. That's exactly right. Exactly mm-hmm. right. So, so God uses us in all kinds of ways. Uh, our task is just to be willing and prepared vessels. Mm-hmm. So, you know, back to what I said in the beginning of the program, and, and you kind of touched on with your analogy about your flu shot. Yeah. Uh, you want to have, you don't want to have AIDS. No. You don't want to have the acquired ignorance of the doctrines of Scripture, because mm-hmm. if you if you have that, you have no immune system. Mm-hmm. If you don't have an immune system, you are open for deception of all kinds. Mm-hmm. And you have no ability to reach those who are also being deceived. Mm-hmm. So our task, really, is to guard the flock. That means understanding sound biblical teaching. Mm-hmm. Being able to convey it in a reasonable, reasoned way so that people can access it and think about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm thinking about uh, Preston Sprinkler. I did a research paper for my Romans class re- recently on uh, Romans 1 and the topic of homosexuality. He wrote a book about the topic and called People to be Loved, Rights, Not Just an Issue and such. And he said he started by just saying, you know, I'm going to look and see if the conservative case is true. And he did agree that, yes, the Bible does condemn homosexual activity. And, you know, he was open to seeing if he was wrong or such. But he talked about being on a plane and someone finding out about what he was writing. This person said, the Bible is very clear. This is wrong. And he said, he just probably did a thought experiment. He said, okay, yeah, can you tell me where it says that? Well, um, I, I don't remember. I, I'm sure it's several places. I, I just can't tell where they are right now. Okay. And, and that's the kind of thing that uh, I thought you were talking about at the start of the show with. You know, people who want to say that this is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the deity of Christ and such. Okay, where is it? Um, well, um, I, right. I, I don't right. know. Yeah. Right, 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 right. That's exactly right. So, mm-hmm. uh, and so that's why we need a sound teaching. Yeah. Because you should be able to make a reasonable defense of that in a fairly short amount of time. Mm-hmm. Well, Don, we're getting to the end of our time here. I don't think we have time to start another discussion. Um. Do you have a blog, website, and email way people can get in touch with you if you want to find out more? Absolutely. Everything uh, they can get to our our, uh, our our blog is our website, midwestoutreach.org. Mm-hmm. Uh, and from there, they can sign up on our e-letter. They can click and they can go to our uh, YouTube channel. 
uh, and they can read our blog. They can send emails to us from there. So there's, if they just have that one source, MidwestOutreach.org, they have access to everything we have out there, mm-hmm. including our donation button. Yeah. Uh, do you have a final message you'd like to leave for Deeper Waters audience? Well, final the final message I think would be Acts twenty twenty eight through thirty. And this is really for the the spiritual leaders, but it applies to everybody mm-hmm. to to guard the flock from those false teachers who would creep in from the outside, and to watch for those inside who would rise up teaching perverse things and draw away disciples after them. Mm-hmm. That is our task: is to protect the family of God. Uh, some have called it boundary maintenance, but it's very biblical. Mm-hmm. Once you do that and people are well trained, then proclamation of the gospel to the lost becomes a fairly simple process. Mm-hmm. Well, Don, I'd like to thank you for coming on the show today, giving us your time. Hopefully, we'll see you back here again sometime. Well, we probably will. I can remind everyone that next week we have Ross Clifford on from a lawyer's case for resurrection. Can you make a legal presentation to defend the resurrection of Jesus? For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I'm signing off.